Our text this morning is Luke 20, 27 through 40. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we're looking at Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus answered them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. Uh, Father, humble our hearts now as we come to Christ's teaching. Father, the, help us not be like the Sadducees with arrogance and doubt in Christ, towards Christ. Father, I pray that we would see His beauty, that we would see His wisdom, that we would see the hope that we have in Christ and in His resurrection. Uh, Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever played the game uh, that we play in our car sometimes where we say, I'm thinking of somebody, and then we begin to give clues and uh, the kids will try to guess who uh, who we are talking about. And there's a sense where I'd like to play that game with you this morning at the beginning and say that I'm thinking about somebody. I'm thinking about some people who have politics at the center of their life, at the center of the hope of their life. And maybe you have names that start to come to mind. These people that I'm thinking of are outwardly religious. They come to church all the time. Their religiosity is very 
important to them. They talk about it a lot. They're incredibly conservative in one sense, and yet liberal in another sense when it comes to their faith. They largely seem indifferent to Christ. They don't get excited when someone's talking about Christ, but they will all of a sudden wake up if they have some sort of encounter with the true Christ. And they respond in opposition to Him. These people pick and choose what parts of Scripture they want to follow. They have their favorites, and then others they ignore. So you could say that at the end of the day, pragmatism wins with these people. They look at the political powers. They pick the scriptures that work best for them. And they ultimately function according to human wisdom. So if pragmatism wins the day with them, the desire for things and power wins their hearts. They're materialistic. And they care very much about their status before people. Now, if we were to play this game, some of you might say, well, this could be me on a bad day. And maybe if you were humble enough to admit it, and you ought to be, you should recognize that could this be talking about you? Now, none of us would say we pick and choose from the Scriptures, but would our life maybe prove it? Can things on this earth captivate us in such a way that we live like this is all there is? You've probably figured out by now that I'm describing the Sadducees of Jesus' day. This is who they were. They ran the temple. They were in charge of the priesthood. The high priests were Sadducees. They, had, they were in cahoots with Rome and the political powers of their day. And so it's no surprise that when they look at the Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture, they picked the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and said, only those first five books are authoritative and the rest are not. So they picked and choose which parts of God's word they wanted. They were arch enemies with the Pharisees because the Pharisees taught the oral law, their own traditions, their own rules, and they rightly scoffed at those. But they also rejected the Old Testament scriptures the Pharisees accepted. 
like the prophets and the Psalms and the wisdom literature. And so they were arch enemies with the Pharisees, especially on one theological issue. They denied the resurrection. They denied that there was life after death. They denied angels and demons, the supernatural. They were materialistic for good reason. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, that there was life after death. How might we live if we did not believe in the resurrection? What would a life look like? And it's easy for us who know there's a resurrection because of our sin to begin to live as though there is not one and that life is not eternal. And to live as though there is no stewardship accounting with Christ Himself with our lives and with our stuff. And so, once again, we can relate. You know, all throughout Luke, we've seen Jesus being combative with the Pharisees. And and rather, uh, what I've been challenging you with is don't just say, yeah, those bad Pharisees, but recognize any area in your own life that aligns with them. And as I've been studying about the Sadducees, I've realized really in our day, I don't know that I see people so religious that they're, they're making these rules and, and uh, uh, living this strict life as much as maybe we align with the Sadducees of being materialistic and living like there is no resurrection. Maybe our tendency in our culture in our day would be similar to put your hope in the next political leader and to make your decisions based off uh, pragmatism rather than what God's Word says. And so these were a group of people that, if you think about it, lived a very hopeless existence and life. And they would have been even lying to what their own heart says. Because in Ecclesiastes 3.11, here's what we read. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So that inside every human heart, God has put eternity in there so that even the atheist that says, I don't believe in God, once we die, life is over, that person better needs to keep telling themselves that because deep down in their heart, they know it's not over. Eternity is put into the heart, into the hearts of men. Job knew this. Job 19.25 He said, For I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. 
And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, and I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Even Job knew that though he was going to die, his flesh would live again. And that he would see his Redeemer on this earth. Or Psalm 16.9 Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or in death, or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalm 23 that is so familiar to us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I could go on and on throughout the Psalms, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of life uh, after death. Isaiah 26, 19, Isaiah says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. The scripture is clear about life after death. And all those texts I just read were not from the Pentateuch. And so the Sadducees held those away from any authoritative position and said no. And so as we come to our text, we in verse 27, we're seeing what we've already seen in chapter 20, an attempt. Jesus has just ruined the week of the, of the Sadducees because Christ has taken over the temple. He's cleared people out. He's teaching in the temple. He's healing the sick, and the sick shouldn't be allowed into the temple. And with Christ's authority, he effectively shut down their money-making business in the courts of the Gentiles as they're ripping people off as they're coming for the Passover. And so they have to figure out how to get rid of Jesus. But they have a problem because the crowds seem to be leaning into Christ. They're afraid that the crowds would turn on them if they became violent so they're trying to figure out ways to make Jesus look stupid so that people wouldn't follow Him anymore. We saw two weeks ago in, in the text previous to this, they, they came with a question about giving, uh, paying taxes to Caesar because they want the Romans... Uh, to see Jesus as an insurrectionist and get the Romans to kill him because they want him out so that they can gain their status and the Sadducees want control of the temple again. 
So what we see is one last feeble attempt to do this without violence. To capture Jesus, make him look like a fool in front of the crowds. But our Lord Jesus Christ, like always, shines so bright with his wisdom. Being God incarnate, you cannot, you, you can't trick Christ. You can't trap Christ. You can't bring lies, concocted lies of, or ignorance and put Jesus in a box. So the charge of this message is to submit your life to Christ. Point one is because he's worthy. And you're going to see that in this text. Don't come with a heart that doubts Christ. Lean into him. He's worthy. He was, his ministry up to that point was worthy of their worship, not more skeptical questions and tricks. And we often can approach Christ also with that same sort of heart. So what we see in verse 27 is there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. We know this from Acts 23 when Paul's on trial before the Sanhedrin and he realizes there's Sadducees and Pharisees in the room. And he basically says, I'm going to throw a bomb in here. And he says, I'm on trial because of my belief in the resurrection of the dead. And then the Pharisees are going, woohoo! And the Sadducees hate that. And so they start to fight amongst each other. And Paul is being wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove in that moment. But it's clear uh, that they were divided. In verse 8 of Acts 23, it says, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so we can see the tension in the context. The Sadducees rightly scoffed at the Pharisees' view of resurrection and the way the Pharisees talked about it. Uh, some of the early historians say that uh, the Pharisees saw such a literal resurrection that the very clothes you were buried in and whatever physical defects you had in the resurrection, you were going to be resurrected in those same clothes and with those same defects. And so there's a sense where the Pharisees' view of resurrection was incredibly wrong and so when the Sadducees scoffed at it, there's a little bit of reasonable scoffing where the Pharisees had the resurrection wrong. And, and so we see the Sadducees come to Christ and they're going to ask Him a question, verse 28. They asked Him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, there's their authority. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, right? First five books of the Bible. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man 
must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Pointing to Deuteronomy 25.5, leveret marriage. And what what we see in Deuteronomy 25.5, what they're pointing to is this. If a brother... If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband, uh, of a husband's brother to her. So that same seed from the brother, uh, the brother deserves to have offspring from his family lines. And so that's the, uh, what, what one of the commands they're pointing to from Moses. And then they have their concocted story that they evidently used against the Pharisees and thought, we've won the day with this argument. We've proved them to be fools. And, and, not uh, function with wisdom. And so they said this, now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. So now leveret marriage would kick in. And the second and the third took her and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be for, for the seven hatter as a wife? So you can see the challenge. They think they have Jesus in a box at, at this point in time. And uh, Luke takes it easy on the Sadducees, I think in comparison to Matthew and what Matthew records. Because Lucas says, and Jesus said to them, he responds to their apparent challenge. But Matthew says this, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. So Jesus says, you're asking a stupid question that can't put me in the box because, first of all, the question's coming from the assumption there is no resurrection, which means you're ignorant of the Bible. You're ignorant of the Scriptures. You don't know the Scripture, even though they would have prided themselves on being very conservative scholars, at least in... Uh, the Pentateuch. And how Luke says it, Jesus said to them, here's his response, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. So there's an age that is introduced. Sons of this age marry. So marriage, according to Christ, is put into a certain age. The sons of this age are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to obtain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. 
And I think this is a shot at the Sadducees. Who would be worthy of the resurrection in that other age? Would it be those that deny that that age exists? We know from the New Testament that the only ones worthy of that age are those who submit themselves to Jesus Christ as Lord. Rather than challenge Him, submit to Him as Lord and realize He is your only hope of resurrection to eternal life in the presence of God. Because what the gospel is, let's be clear on the gospel, we're all sinners, and what we deserve for that sin is death, separation from God for all eternity. That's hell. The Bible's clear in its description of of, uh, how our sin separates us from God. But Christ, living the perfect life in our place, taking our sin to the cross and dying under the wrath of God can pay for your sins and gift you His perfect righteousness and life so that those who are worthy of that eternal life are those who have trusted in Christ and have had their sins forgiven and perfect righteousness put in their account, in our sons of God. And what Jesus says is, in verse 35, those who are considered worthy to obtain that age into the resurrection from the dead, neither marry or are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. So in that new age, there is no death. Because... They are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So the angels don't die. In the new age, we don't have weak flesh like this that dies but will live on forever. Those who trust in Christ in God's presence forever those who reject Christ will also get bodies that will survive forever apart from God in the misery of hell. And so as we look at Jesus' response, his response is, you don't understand the difference in ages, Sadducees. Your assumption that this age is going to be just like that age, maybe they thought that because of the Pharisees' uh, description of the resurrection, is wrong. They don't know the power of God. They haven't read the Scriptures that would help them discern the difference between the two ages. Now, those of you who are enjoying your marriage experience, which I realize isn't everyone, often come to this text and are deeply troubled because they want to be married forever. And 
part of Jesus' response is, well, the next stage is different, which means uh, there's different uh, behaviors. So marriage was given to this age. In that age, it won't be given. God's power is greater. Perfect intimacy with God will be had and with one another. There will be no sin. And he points to the fact that we won't die anymore. And the question is, is so what does that have to do with there not being marriage? Well, when God created Adam and Eve, He said that they were to procreate, that they were to get married, and that little image bearers should cover the entire earth, that God's glory, God could be glorified through these people that were created in His image. And now being there is no death, and you have all these image bearers who now no longer have sin, there's no need for procreation to continue on. There's no need for an illustration to point to the Gospel because it's been consummated. It's been realized in Christ. And you can rest assured, those of you who are married, that you'll have greater connection to your spouse in heaven, greater intimacy with them and with God. But the need for our sexual uh, uh, relationship will not be there in the age to come. And so he's teaching them about the distinction. So both Pharisees and Sadducees are learning and Christ's response or ought to be. There's a sense where Philippians 3.19 would sum up the Sadducees. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. They couldn't see past the world that they lived in. But Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. The Pharisees were wrong. The bodies aren't the same. By the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So here again, in the resurrection, God's power, the attribute of His power, is the thing that is being brought to our attention. It's hard for our minds to imagine if a family member was cremated or burned in a fire or lost at sea, how God is going to take that same body and bring it back to life into a more glorious spiritual body. That's hard for us to comprehend. But we know that when Christ returns, every plot at the cemetery that is a burial plot where the family weeps and mourns the loss of their loved one and it's hard to watch the body of the loved one that you know go into the ground because 
the spirit of that person lived inside that body, but that same place will be a resurrection plot one day because of Christ. If we knew where the tomb of Christ is, we would not say that's where they put his dead body. We would say that's where the stone was rolled away. That, that's where he came to life. And so Jesus now helping them understand the distinction of two ages and the fact that some are going to be worthy of the age of, of, of eternal life in the presence of God being called sons of God. Now he's going to make an argument from the Pentateuch because all these other texts about resurrection that I read at the beginning were not from the Pentateuch. But here's what Jesus does. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's pointing to Exodus 3, verse 6, and also verses 15 and 16 in Exodus 3. And then Jesus has this commentary on that text. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Dead people don't have a God. Living people have a God. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So, all saints, after they die, live to him. Their worship goes to him. He doesn't lose worshipers when a believer dies physically. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. What a devastating blow to the Sadducees in front of the crowds, in front of their arch enemies, the Pharisees. The argument they used over and over and over again, they were devastated in as Jesus gave them new information that they shouldn't have been new. He points out from their own scripture, from the Pentateuch, from the books of Moses, he proves that the resurrection was taught. And so, we should ask this question. In what way are they still alive? In, in, in what way is Abraham alive? Because the Scripture makes clear that the resurrection is in the future. In Luke 14.14, 14, we read this, And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So there's a resurrection that's forward. Or Acts 23.6, 
Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So there's a hope to see the fulfillment of this resurrection in Acts 24.15, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. There will be. So in what sense is Abraham alive if the resurrection of the just is in the future? It's a good question to ponder. In the sense that our spirit lives immediately, continues to live after we die until the resurrection of our bodies. And there's so many texts we could point to. John 11.25, Jesus speaking to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Your spirit doesn't go out of existence when a person dies physically. And we could learn this from Luke 16. Remember the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus in verse 22 says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side and called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And so you see immediately, the day after they die, they're living and they're thinking and they're talking and Abraham's alive. And the one that you're probably already thinking of, Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who were hanged next to Christ railed at him saying, you are not the Christ, save yourself. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence and condemnation? And indeed, we justly for our, our, and we indeed justly for we are, Uh, receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus said, and Jesus said, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So the thief on the cross that is saved in that moment, that day is going to be with Christ in paradise. Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That's where he's going to be if he passes away. And Jesus said weird things like this. Luke 12.4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. That's weird. 
Let me read that again. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those that kill the body. And after that can do and have nothing more they can do. So we are to be people who know and believe what the Scripture says about the resurrection. The guarantee of our resurrection is Christ's resurrection from the dead as the first fruits. And yet, it's so easy, is it not, for us to live like the Sadducees as though what is truly true is not in fact true. Luke's going to go on in Luke 21.16. He's going to say this. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you'll gain your lives. So even those who die... Not a hair of their head will perish and through their death, through endurance in faith, will have hope. So submit your life to Christ because He's worthy. Christ is trustworthy. He's wise. He's now resurrected from the dead. We don't need to fear what the world fears. How much of your fear is about death? Your death. The death of other believers. That's not a fear we need to have. Yes, we should have a heart that longs for those who are lost and could die at any moment. Yes, that ought to urge us to share the gospel. But how much of my own personal worry is because I live like there's no resurrection from the dead? If I'm honest, I'm going to have to say a lot of it. And so I need to remember the foolishness of the Sadducees so I can fight the own foolishness of my own sinful heart. Submit your life to Christ because He is the resurrection and the life. The reason why they should believe Jesus, see, they're not going to be afraid to kill Him in a few days because they don't believe there is a resurrection from the dead. But they're going to find out in short order there is. And then they're going to have to make more lies and try to cover up the resurrection of Christ. And finally, submit your life to Him because He is the Word. Why do I say that? Jesus Christ, being the Word incarnate Himself, when He makes an argument, what does He do? He takes you back to Moses. And He shows that how His ministry and His life doesn't add to Scripture, but it fulfills Scripture. His ministry ties into the authority of the Word of God. And you ought to trust Christ because His ministry, His life, His teaching always was rooted in the authority of the Scripture itself. And so He's worthy of our lives.
He's worthy of our faith and our trust. And he's worthy of us coming to him without a skeptical heart and worshiping him for who he is. Father, I pray that this would be true of our lives. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged as we see the Sadducees' foolishness in denying the resurrection, which causes Jesus to point us to our resurrection. Father, I pray that we would leave here encouraged. We are the people who though we die, yet shall we live. We are the people that have an inheritance sent before us. We have the status of sons of God. We're like the angels that can never die again. And we're heading toward an age where every tear will be wiped away. And death will be no more. So Father, let us live in light of who we really are. Looking to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.